Thank you for tuning in to Movie Geeks United. David J. Skull has always had an affection for the monsters of the silver screen. That love has propelled his career as one of the great scholars of gothic horror history. He's written the first full-fledged biography of Freaks director Todd Browning, a comprehensive look at the various iterations of Dracula, and The Monster Show, an influential volume that examines the parallels between films of terror and the turbulent times that informed them. His latest book is a beauty. The Turner Classic Movies commissioned Fright Favorites, 31 movies to haunt your Halloween and beyond. First of all, I'm wondering, how does it feel when when you work on a, a, on a book and it's finally seeing the light of day? How does that satisfy you as, as the creator? Well, it's always, you know, when I'm working on a book, I kind of have some um, stopgap uh, placeholder image of the finished book in my mind. Uh, I always have seemed to have worked that way, and it usually isn't the kind of cover I expected or, you know, anything when it finally comes out. But uh, it is, uh, it's nice. I used to design my own books, and uh, I was a graphic designer for a long time. But I think it's really not a good idea for authors to get too involved in uh, the production aspects of their books because you will inevitably, uh, there's a mistake, you're so used to seeing it, you're not going to catch it, and, uh, and, um, and it's just too much. And there are other people who, who are better you know, at designing books than, uh, than I am, although I think I was pretty good. Um, and uh, this is a wonderful case in point because uh, uh, Turner Classic Movies and uh, Running Press, their their publisher in Philadelphia, uh, did just a wonderful uh, production job from start to finish on this. Mm. And it's uh, it's it's a lovely you know uh, keeper of a book just from uh, the way it looks. It's a it's a kind of a uh, it's not a full sized coffee table book, but it is uh, kind of a coffee table book. Uh, uh, in compact size and it uh, will look great on your coffee table. Um, <laughs> it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard cover that uh, does not have a dust jacket, but does have a wraparound uh, cover design. And uh, it is just gorgeously uh, printed um, outside the United States, printed in China, the way most, uh, most art books and photo books these days are. And uh, so that, required a longer lead time but uh, it, it was it was worth it yeah it's, really. it's a be- it's a gorgeous volume and it, i mean it's terrifically written I, i'm wondering uh did was it tcm that approached you for this project and, and what was their mandate well uh both uh, tcm approached me through running press they had had some success with a uh, a couple of books uh based on christmas themed movies and uh the next holiday in line the next biggest retail holiday in america is halloween after christmas and so that was the natural place to go and uh they sounded me out and would i be potentially interested and i said sure let's talk about it and we did and batted some ideas back and forth the um the idea of doing a book about uh movies that featured halloween like the Christmas book, uh, wouldn't really work out because it would be so dominated by the, you know, the John Carpenter franchise. Yeah. And, um, 
and you'd have to, frankly, to get a month's worth of films, you'd have to add some that just barely dealt with Halloween but uh, had a memorable jack-o'-lantern or two in them <laughs> somewhere. And so it made more sense to look at movies that uh, are appropriate for Halloween. And uh, so we... Um, batted ideas back and forth because as you might imagine uh turner and also my publisher who uh, do a lot of uh film books uh you know apart from from uh, uh tcm had everybody had a lot of idea because we're all movie geeks you know mm-hmm. and but uh, so i came up with a, an initial list and we talked about it and um it rapidly became apparent that uh, 31 films was just not enough. So <laughs> I struck on I struck on the idea of well, what if we treated this kind of like 31 double features and had a backup for 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 each entry. I love and that. So, I love that that the sections that say if you enjoy this movie, you might like and and, and there's such great titles that you're you're including in that. Yeah, and I think and I think there there's some unusual pairings there. And I really would like to see them, you know, if, if uh, theaters ever reopen, and we do have uh, double features again. Um, for instance, with Cat People, I chose as the second feature, uh, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Mm-hmm. And so we have two very, um, you know, classic black and white films from, you know, very different um, different decades, but uh, with a scary female character and uh, a lot of things barely glimpsed in the shadows and uh so um that was fun too and you know and something like uh i've never seen it on the double bill but night of the living dead with carnival of souls mm. would uh, be something that i'd uh, enjoy seeing if only to start uh start a good conversation um you know in a classroom uh that's the only place i've really really been able to program um uh, double features, you know, just assigning two films and then we talk about them. Yeah, I, 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 I love. Get to teach a course. I mean, I love the notion of the, the double feature play at the theaters and and uh, you know and reading books like yours, you know, and so many of these classic, unforgettable um, films that you're covering, it, it brings back the the romance of movies for me, <laughs> you know, which I think in our age of cynicism. It, gets kind of lost in our culture yeah yeah i think the uh nostalgia is all about uh remembering uh, simpler friendlier times even though the real <laughs> periods you know the great depression the cold war you know weren't really all that uh that comforting uh to to live through but in uh but they can take on a rosy glow in in, in retrospect and um, the movies, it, uh, it's like music. You know, you associate uh, a particular favorite tune with something in your life, and you do the same things with movies. Mm. And uh, uh, whereas I like to make connections between uh, scary entertainment and the uh, big social problems of the day, and that's something that's kind of a through line in my books. Uh, we also do something else. We we associate them with uh, uh, with you know a first date with somebody or yeah. or uh, something uh, 
less uh, less challenging and uh, and uh, things we, we we think of fondly. And I think that people are very fond of these old uh, iconic monster characters. Very few people are really frightened of any of the old, uh, you know, universal characters in in in, in particular. But uh, they have kind of taken on a very very rosy glow, mm-hmm. and uh, I, uh, I I love talking to people. Uh, this time of the year, I'm usually on the road, and it's going to be a very different kind of Halloween season, of course. And uh, so I'm missing out on the the uh, personal appearances and the bookstore signings and the fan conventions and, and the college lectures that I usually do. But uh, I look forward to it because I get to meet uh, the people. I, you know, I, I work um, basically in isolation, in a, you know, locked in a room by myself most of the year and uh, like to get out and you know, see who's reading these things i'm writing and and And, the horror uh, community is uh i mean they're a very enthusiastic bunch (laughs) so that must be a delight when you get to kind of rub shoulders with. well fortunate yes fortunately there are a lot of podcasts and i've done more (laughs) uh in the past few weeks than i think i've ever uh done period and uh and when we use zoom especially it's the next best thing to being there so let's talk about a couple of these movies. Uh, I want to start where your book starts, which is with Nosferatu from, I believe it's 22, 1922. Right. Uh, I'm curious as to uh, the, the path it took to achieve its popularity. Did it immediately catch on in, uh, in Germany? And when did it come to our shores and catch on? Well, it had a very bumpy kind of uh, passage from uh, from um, a very obscure film to begin with to a classic of uh, German expressionism. Uh, the biggest problem was that it was an unauthorized adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula and uh, proudly trumpeted the fact, uh, you know, in the, in the advertisements uh, originally in Germany, it said, freely adapted from Bram Stoker's Dracula, and this reached the attention of Stoker's widow, Florence Stoker, in London, who uh, was eking out a kind of a meager income uh, on her husband's royalties. Uh, He wrote a lot of books, but none of them made the kind of money Dracula did, and um, she launched a a kind of holy war against Nosferatu and got uh, the British Society of Authors involved and uh, and uh, filed a suit in the German courts and it dragged on for a couple of years mm. but she eventually uh, succeeded in having the film uh, declared an infringement of her rights uh, plagiarism and uh, all copies were supposedly uh, to be destroyed including the negatives and um, that fortunately did not happen, uh, much to Florence Stoker's consternation, but, uh, uh, happily it did happen because we would have lost one of the, uh, the world's uh, great, you know, silent masterpieces. Yeah. But, uh, it was kind of scattered, uh, around the world in different, uh, different prints and, and, uh, slowly pulled itself back together. And it wasn't until after World War Two that it started uh, 
getting a a critical following. The, it was shown briefly in New York in the late 1920s and uh, was really dismissed uh, as, as kind of a crudely made, uh, not very frightening film. And uh, it's very surprising to read those reviews now because we have such a different take on it that actually um, many people find it to be a very frightening film and uh, find Max Schreck as Count Orlock, a.k.a. Dracula, to be maybe the most frightening interpretation of Stoker's vampire we've, we, we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, gradually uh, the pieces have come back together, and it's only been in recent years that it's been fully, fully restored with the original uh, musical score also reconstructed and, and the original uh, tones and tints put back into it uh you know we think of silent films as too often as being um in in black and white and that's not really the case uh, from very very early on uh silent films were uh tinted sometimes by hand and uh, they were always accompanied by um music in most uh, in most venues and so they were not black and white and they weren't silent and, and these, these horror movies in Germany, they weren't escapist entertainment. They were, they were serious art films, and they, they had uh, uh, social and cultural and political messages in in them. That's exactly uh, it. To... That's definitely what because that's the part of the uh, the horror genre that particularly fascinates me because I think the horror genre is uniquely suited to kind of infuse uh, cultural and and societal messages within it or reflects the cultural and societal problems of the day and this came at the the end of or a couple of years removed from world war one and i'm wondering if you think that infused itself in the film yeah you see both uh both world war one and the and the uh the flu pandemic of mm. 1918 these two twin catastrophes they're very clearly reflected in the in, in the film, uh, uh, the vampire is uh, depicted as, you know, a bringer of plague, and the um, uh, Count Orlock himself is considered to be this uh, uh, this symbol. The not not just by film historians, but the filmmakers. They put it in their publicity materials mm. that uh, Nosferatu was a metaphor for the war itself the war being a cosmic kind of vampire that had uh, had uh, uh, you know absorbed the the lifeblood of 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 of, of europe and uh, so these films were presented as kind of prestige events not uh, saturday matinees and uh, uh the cabinet of dr caligari was also uh, uh, very influential um on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, Caligari was not hounded by uh, you know legal complaints, and so it had probably the uh, uh, the greater effect. But they're uh, often um, they're often double billed, and uh, and and well they uh, well they should. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they were um, of course Hollywood imported in the early 30s, you know as Hitler was coming. Uh, coming to power uh 
a lot of uh, German talent fled uh, fled Berlin and uh, came to Hollywood. And uh, so you had many uh, creative types in Hollywood who were creating these uh, American uh, original horror films who had both the experience of working in the German expressionist uh, milieu in, in, in Germany and who had also uh, uh, served in, in the war and had experienced the war uh, for some. So I think, you know, World War I was the first big calamity of the 20th century that set in motion recognizable, um, you know, patterns in uh, uh, horror entertainment uh, in the same way that it set uh, forth all kinds of developments in 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 the visual arts and uh, and and music and almost every artistic discipline usually having to do with distortions and and uh, grotesqueries mm-hmm. uh surrealism and uh, uh dada for instance or you know two movements that uh, kind of paralleled uh, the uh, the growth of the horror movie well those are definitely parallels that you you can witness throughout the films you cover in your book. I mean, right up to the the final one, which is Get, Get Out, uh, which is a reflection of some of the political and and social uh, quandaries we're dealing with today. Uh, so it's an oh, ongoing ongoing yeah. theme uh, throughout the horror genre that really excites me about it. Yeah, I didn't uh, when I, when I wrote my my first book that delved into this, the Monster Show. It um, I didn't set out to you know prove a thesis, but it was only in my research that uh, I thought I was simply going to write you know the the book about the history of horror films that uh, I couldn't really find anywhere to read you know on my own. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the answer to when people ask me why do you write the kind of books you do. I say I write the books that I can't find anywhere to read myself, and uh, and that answer you know kinds of questions. And I uh, before I started my my career as a film historian, I had worked in in the performing arts in live theater for uh, for a couple of decades, and uh, I was keenly aware that there's always a backstory, and that uh, people in the performing arts are uh, often very colorful and sometimes very prickly and sometimes very obsessive people. And this all had to be there, you know, in the history of horror films. So I thought that's what I was doing. I was going to dig up uh, uh, anecdotes and, and backstories that hadn't been told. But when I went back to look at the decade in which I first discovered uh, the, the, the genre, the early 1960s, I... Um, remembered monsters very fondly as you know a uh, big big interest of mine when i was a kid they certainly didn't frighten me but something else did frighten me at the time and i had totally put it out of my mind and that was the the cold war mm. and it was exactly at the point of the cuban missile crisis in october of 1962 that i first discovered the uh, the monster magazines and the the uh, uh, the model kits you could buy from Aurora Plastics and uh, uh, the movies on TV and uh, I was kind of floored when I looked at the the uh, the pop charts for October of 1962 and the number one song was the Monster Mash 
a dance of death sung by a mad scientist at the very moment we're being, uh, you know, threatened with atomic annihilation. It was like, Mm. how did I miss that? I had grown up uh, loving these films and hadn't thought about it. But my, uh, I had a good editor uh, at W.W. Norton who encouraged me to to look for these same kind of threads decade by decade, and lo and behold, they were there. And uh, so, whether it's a, uh, you know, uh, wars, epidemics, cultural revolutions, the sexual revolution, the AIDS crisis, the, the, um, um, you, you you name it, the. Uh, there are identifiable patterns that go out there. And I think it's because we need to process all of this fear and anxiety, but we don't like to do it too directly. We don't right. like to look at the thing that's terrifying us. And you know, you put a you put a monster mask on it, and it's a lot easier to take. Yeah, and I think uh, the, the great artists they they know how to do it, uh, and it's not just limited to the horror genre. I mean, you mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis, and if you look at something like Doctor Strangelove, I think Kubrick was very smart to use the guise of satire to to kind of enter that world, and it, it in some way right. it makes it much more impactful that he did it that way. Right, and uh, I, w- I was delighted when uh, um, uh, Joe Dante did his film Matinee, mm-hmm. where he just completely dramatized the, the same point I was making. In, in the monster show and uh, uh, had John Goodman as a William Castle-like uh, uh, film director who was uh, debuting something, uh, you know, at the height of the, uh, the Cold War and uh, had a rabid following among young, uh, uh, young monster fans. And it, uh, yeah, there's, there's always, there's always a flip side. There's always uh we're, we're on one level. We're, we're usually amused by by uh, old monster movies. We uh, think of them very fondly. They're they're nostalgic. They're fun. They're amusing, and uh, yet they cover up some real uh, anxieties and terrors that we've probably swept under the yeah uh, the rugs of our of our minds and imaginations. I, I want to ask you about the three more movies real quick. I promise I won't keep you too long. Um... Invasion of the Body Snatchers. You cover the uh, the original film in your book. Going on the conversation that we've been having, I think this plot is so malleable <laughs> to comment on the t- whatever time we're living in. Uh, I mean, it's been remade several times, and uh, I, I personally think we're due for another one. It started for me. It started last Thursday in response to an urgent message from my nurse. I'd hurried home from. Medical convention I've been attending. At first glance, everything looked the same. It wasn't. Something evil had taken possession of the town. When it's not being remade, it's certainly inspiring a lot of films. Uh, uh, we talked about, uh, you know, uh, Get Out. Uh, Jordan Peele's uh, Us mm. uh, mm-hmm. went right back to the well of, you know, the. Uh, the body snatchers. It's interesting that that film in the uh, uh, the fifties was not a uh, an unconscious kind of um, uh, uh, expression. Uh, Don Siegel, uh, the director, was very conscious of what he was doing. He was making a, uh, a statement about uh, 
conformity and paranoia in the in the uh, first uh, you know wave of the uh, of, of the Cold War, and uh, it's one of the most uh, imitated movies yeah. uh, of any of any genre I can think of, and it's the kind of film like. Uh, you know, like Dracula or Frankenstein, these are characters and themes that uh, you don't have to have seen the movie uh, to know exactly who that character is and what that story is about, uh, because it has so thoroughly permeated consciousness and, and culture through uh, through advertising and uh, and uh, what, was homages this, and yeah. Was it made concurrently with the blacklist? Was it in that wheelhouse? It was a little after the blacklist, um, but uh, all the, the the height of the blacklist was at the early the early fifties. But it it cast a long shadow, mm-hmm. and um, there were uh, some directors brave enough to uh, uh, like 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 Don Siegel yeah. to, uh, to to kind of tackle it straight on, but. Uh, but even today, maybe one of the most influential uh, horror movies of all time, because even if you haven't seen it, even if you don't know anything about any version of it or or the novel it was based on, everybody knows what a pod person is. Yeah. yeah. Why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? They said when you got here, the whole thing started... Who are you? What are you? Where did you come from? I think you're the cause of all this. I think you're evil! Evil! I think they're going. We can get Kathy at Annie's now. Out of all the Hitchcock films, uh, why the birds? Why, Why was that your pick? Well, we talk, I mean, we, we talked about that. I mean, it had to be either Psycho or The Birds, um, uh, which are both um, horrific. And uh, I was partial to The Birds because you can relate it to some of the other uh, things in the book, like like uh, uh, Them, mm-hmm. the, you know, uh, Nature Run Amok which was really a science fiction trope of the of, of the 1950s. And I don't think without that, uh, that category being very well established that the public would have bought something like The Birds, which uh, is, is a very improbable story, but uh, audiences had been conditioned to expect nature to take its... Um, revenge on humanity usually and uh, Hitchcock didn't use atomic mutations but uh, simply uh, you know nature red in beak and claw and mm. uh, uh, it's um, it, it, it's it's quite an achievement yeah I think so too I mean that um, and they just came out with a new uh, 4k blue blu-ray of it I can't wait to see what it looks like uh, restored. It's a just gorgeous movie. Um, Night of the Living Dead. 
uh, I, I've been doing this series where I've been covering every film released in the year 1970. And, uh, and it was, 70s were obviously a time when directors were redefining genre films. They were kind of pushing the boundaries of what you could do and express in a genre film. And that was most pronounced in horror because if you, if you look at the kind of the tried and true horror films of the time and, you know, the factory that was Hammer or Amicus films or what have you, uh, all of a sudden something like Night of the Living Dead comes out and there seems to be a thirst for something that feels, uh, almost more despairing and more authentic. Uh, did, 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 do you feel like that the influence of that film changed the direction of the genre in general? Well, you have to remember the uh, the context that came out at the height of um, you know uh, the Vietnam conflict and all of the uh, uh, the cultural upheaval that uh, you know attended it here at home. Um, it was a very cynical time. Uh, it came out right after the you know a series of uh, um, both, both the King and the uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy assassinations, mm-hmm. and uh, they were very, very fresh in, in the public's mind, and it was a very downbeat kind of. Uh, I remember it because it was the, the the time where I was just kind of getting interested in political ideas and and movements and protests and. Uh, um, I know at the you know at the age of like 17 I was absolutely certain there was no future left for the human race. <laughs> mm. uh, it was a very grim, grim time, and um, Night of the Living Dead. Um, George, I, I talked to George Romero uh, personally about this. And he didn't uh, intend to be putting forth forth some big cultural metaphor. Uh, although he really did build on that in the, the films that followed, uh, it was a low-budget film uh, that took on a very took on a verite kind of quality simply because of the uh, the lack of a budget and the uh, uh, they had to use the resources they had and the uh, 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 you know found locations and. Uh, so it has this very gritty look to it that does not look at anything like it, like a Hollywood um, horror film. Yeah. And it was very popular on the, the midnight movie and drive-in circuits. And it was uh, it was a very controversial film. It was something that uh, you know the censors railed against, and uh, and uh, parents and teachers really didn't want you to see, and uh, just made it all the more attractive. And it became this kind of transgressive thing you just had to do, and uh, and I uh, like millions of others, I saw it at a drive-in theater for the first time, and it was kind of a rite of passage, a badge of honor to mm. have uh, seen Night of the Living Dead, which was a film they didn't want you to see. Wow. Yeah, I think about I think about those seminal films and. You know, I'm 46, so I was born in 73, and I just kind of bemoan the fact that I, I was not able to see them when they first came out to be a part of that experience. I just, you know, my, the number one movie experience I wish I would have had would have been opening day of Psycho. I I, I can't imagine what the temperature in that theater would have been. 
Well, I, I really spoiled it for myself because I, I was a very precocious reader. And uh, I was in elementary school, and I went out and found a copy of the tie-in uh, version of the Robert Block novel. And so I read it. I just inhaled it the night before I saw the film. So um, I did not experience it with the kind of surprise that other people did. I think I was a little disappointed that you know Janet Lee did not have her head cut off the way <laughs> Block did in the book. <laughs> uh, I felt cheated, perhaps. Yeah, that would be uh, any of these films. It would be just wonderful to be able to uh, take an amnesia pill and get into a time machine yeah, and absolutely. go back and see them as uh, unprepared audiences saw them for the very, very first times. Mm. Well, you write about them so beautifully, and I uh, I can't thank you enough for, for your work on the book and, and the other extraordinary books that you've authored, and I, I thank you so much for giving me time to talk about it tonight. Well, thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. And uh, please, um, if you feel like having me back, uh, we barely cracked the surface here. So. Yeah. Thank you.